You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. If you want to grab your Bible, um, flip to 1 Peter. Um, you need a Bible, so if, if you need to borrow one, feel free to grab one of those underneath your seat. If you need to steal one, feel free to steal one of those underneath your seat. So either way is good. So uh, make sure you have your Bible. 1 Peter is where we are. Um, it's one of those moments I'll never forget. It reoccurs periodically like a nightmare, just doesn't go away. And uh, it was in the spring of the year. I don't know if y'all have heard about spring. It happens for about two days around here, right? So it was in the spring of the year. I was a freshman in high school. Okay, so the scenario goes like this. Well, and by the way, in the spring of the year, I am typically catching big bass and or golfing. Okay, that's what I'm typically doing. But on this, yeah, there you go. On this particular day, I found myself on a track. Now, I'm just going to state the obvious real quick. I'm short, I'm slow, I'm white. I don't belong on a track, all right? In no way, shape, or form do I belong on a track. So I find myself on a track, but the trouble is just starting with me being on the track. Second problem is I'm a freshman on a track, and I'm, I'm at a high school track meet. That's not a good idea for me. Okay, it's, it's just, it's not, that's not where I do my thing right there. Okay, so I'm on a track, I'm at a high school track meet, but the problem's just starting. I find myself on the four by 100 meter relay. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with track, that's where the fast people are. It's where I shouldn't be, all right? So, um, and to top all that off, I'm not only on the four by 100 meter relay from just the grace and compassion of my coach, um, I am the anchor leg of the four by 100 meter relay. And I'm in the lane beside the, the guys that, that placed at state that year, right? And so I, I, and I'll just spare you the, the, the details of the slaughter that ensued from that point forward. But, but there was this memorable moment. I'll never forget this. this uh, it's like burned in my brain. This one moment, I, like I've lined up, I've gotten, I'm on the track and I look to my right and my left. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't belong here. I haven't prepared for this moment. We never even took a baton, little handoff thing. We, we haven't trained for it. We're not ready for it. We've done nothing to get ourselves ready for this race that I shouldn't even be in in the first place. Okay, light illustration for I, I think is a heavy reality that most Christians find themselves in when the providence of God pulls them onto the track and onto the path of suffering is there is a moment that happens where where I think most Christians have this overwhelming sense of, I am not prepared for this. I am not ready for this. I haven't done the hard work of thinking about this before it got here. Okay, now I want you to listen to D.A. Carson as he describes what happens when you come into tragedy, into loss, with, with an unformed theology or a bad theology. Okay, listen to what he says. One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. Okay, are we seeing the problem? The problem is it's too late to form your theology when you're in the middle of it. Theology is cold comfort in the middle of tragedy and calamity. 
We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with uh, tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out, not informed by the Bible, not not thought through, not, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, and chances are you have got deeply ingrained thoughts about suffering, about evil, about tragedy, but, but probably not well thought out yet, more than likely. So not well thought out, but deeply ingrained. So if this is happening, are largely out of step. These thoughts, this deeply ingrained feel about suffering, tragedy, theology about these things, are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus. Then, if, if all that's true, if we haven't thought through these things beforehand, haven't prepared ourselves, haven't taken a few baton pa- passes before we get on the track, If that hasn't happened, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. And I've told you this before, but I feel like it's one of my primary tasks as a person that that teaches to you a lot to make sure that, that we are ready and prepared for pain. That that you have a thought out theology before you taste suffering. That before you experience loss, that these things have been thought through, worked through. That you have a biblically informed view of life, of suffering, of God, how God deals with it, how we deal. That that is thought through for you. So I consider it one of my primary goals. I I tell people periodically that that I'm going to marry and bury most most of the guys in here, right? And I want to make sure you're not just prepared for the marry part, but also for the back end of that thing. So, so we've got a job to do in that regard. Okay, now this is the reason that we are preaching through 1 Peter. If you'll remember just the context, he is preaching to, or he is writing to um, people that are suffering, Christians, saints who are in the crucible of affliction, right? I mean, they, they are suffering saints in the furnace of affliction. This is where they find themselves. And this is going to be our first, pa- uh, pe- uh, oh gosh, passage in Peter where he starts to unpack this, where as a pastor, he starts to look at, at his crew, at, at these recipients of this letter, and, and he's starting to, to pastor them tenderly, speak into their suffering, to, to make sure it is biblically informed, to make sure that their theology is straight, that they are in alignment with, with who God has revealed himself to be in the scriptures. And so we want to make sure we're taking these opportunities to do that. And so, so here's the plan for this morning. I, I feel like it's got a pastoral overtone. It's a hard topic. We're talking about suffering, but it's got a pastoral overtone in the sense that my, my hope and my prayers that this season of study in First Peter would be a season of preparation for us as a church family and for you as a mom, as a dad, as a son or a daughter to, to get ready for what is in, in, inevitable for you, what's unavoidable, inescapable for all of us in the room for suffering. And so with that said, let, let's turn our attention to First Peter chapter 1 verse 6. Peter says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So I want to give you just six kind of pastoral thoughts as it relates to suffering from 1 Peter and specifically this passage that I hope will serve as good prep work for you. So here's the first one. 
Number one is the certainty of suffering. So so I just want to just state this as plainly and as clearly as I can. Suffering is inescapable for us. It's unavoidable for us. It is coming down the pike for everyone in this room. You live long, you die early. It's coming for all of us in here. Suffering is inescapable. The scars of suffering will mark every one of us in this room. Go ahead and flip to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Just a a couple of pages over. And, and, And just here... Peter pastoring these people in the midst of their suffering, just affirming to them that suffering is a certainty, right? Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, so do this. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That that you need to make sure that, that you know Jesus suffered and you need to be armed with the reality that I will suffer too. You need to wear that. You need to put that on like a vest, like a helmet, so that as you live life, that that is there for you when tragedy strikes. Look at verse 12, coming down there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised at this. This isn't a strange thing for a Christian. I mean, don't count this as like extraordinary for a Christian. Suffering is the normal lot for all Christians. This is just a part of the deal of what it means to follow Jesus. And let me just remind you of this, that, that the readers of 1 Peter, they were not suffering because of their sin, but because of their, basically because they were saved, right? I mean, they were suffering because they had faith in God, not because they were faithless in God. They, they were suffering because they were the good guys, Right? So suffering is coming for all of us. And this is what makes me so sickened by the prosperity gospel. That is going to say that if you just have enough faith in God, if you just have enough belief, if you'll just love God well enough and good enough, if you'll just do all of that, then all this suffering, all this tragedy, all this sorrow, all this trouble, all these trials, they're gone. You won't have to experience those. That is not the testimony of Scripture. Can we all agree with that? That is not the, 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 the path for a Christian. That is not how the scripture unfolds as it relates to your life. Do you remember Job? Do you, do you remember the circumstances of Job? Do you remember how Job was described in the first two chapters? Here, here are some descriptive words of Job. It says he was blameless. He was upright. Um, he, he feared God. He shunned evil. He's one of the good guys, right? And do you remember what happened to Job? Do you remember the four reports he gets in the first couple of chapters? Report one. Uh, man, these guys have raided your livestock. They've killed, they've killed some of your livestock and they've killed your servants. And as soon as that one ends, another one starts. You wouldn't believe this. Lightning struck, killed your camels. As soon as that one ends, another one starts. You wouldn't believe this. Another, like a raiding band, the, the Chaldeans, they've come down. They, they've destroyed everything. They've killed your sheep. They've killed your servants. You've got no servants left here. As soon as that one finishes, the fourth report comes in. You remember that one? Your, your, your seven sons and daughters that they were eating together and a wind struck the corners of the building, smashed them all, they're all dead. This is the good guy, right? This is Job. This is a, this is a good man and, and devastation breaks out. His business is gone, his livestock is gone, his servants are gone, right? His family is gone. I mean, this is, this is, just, this is coming for all of us in various forms in this room. Suffering is a certainty, I mean, this is, take Jesus as a for instance of this. Um, Isaiah 53 said he is a man of sorrows, that, that he experienced suffering. That this is the testimony of the scripture. I'm going to throw a, a, a verse up here, out of, or a couple of verses out of Hebrews chapter 11. You can flip there or look up, at them up on the screen. But, but think about Hebrews 11. 
This is often called the the Hall of Faith. This this is essentially a picture and a portrait uh, of the exploits of God through faith-filled people, right? This is Hebrews 11. Now, we love to read like one section of Hebrews 11, but we hate to read the end of it. So it starts with, here's what Moses did through faith. Here's what Noah did through faith. Here's all these exploits through faith. But then you get down to verse 32 and here's what it's going to go on to say. And what more shall we say? For time would not fail, uh, would fail me to to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtaining promises, stopped the mouth of lions. See, we love these. Verse 34, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 33, women received back their dead by resurrection. We love those verses, right? We, we love to read those. We love when those happen to us. We love those, but that's not the end of the story. It keeps going. Some faith-filled people, some were tortured, refusing to receive, uh, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. I don't know if you have like a way you'd like to go, but that is not the way I would like to go right there. They're sawn in two for crying out loud. They're sawn into, they, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves in the earth. Do you see the picture? This suffering is certain for all of us in the room. In John 16, Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have tribulation. That is coming for you. So I think it would be good just to hear these words of Peter and and just to allow this encouragement to settle into your heart. Arm yourselves with that. Don't consider this strange when it happens. When tragedy lands on, uh, on, on your house, when loss hits you, when heartache happens, don't consider this strange. Arm yourself with that. Prepare yourselves with that. Suffering is certain. Number two. Number two, this is going to look at verse six here, the diversity of suffering. You you see how verse six unfolds? And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by what? Various trials. You see that? Various. I mean, Peter is saying that the trials aren't just certain. They, They are certain, but they come in all shapes and sizes. That there is no telling how suffering is going to hit you. That there's no telling. It is diverse and it's, ways it can come about. Suffering is diverse. So so some of you in this room right now are are just in the crucible of extreme physical suffering, where you've got chronic pain, you've got diseases, and you've got sicknesses that, that barring just an absolute miracle of God, are going to be with you until Jesus returns or you die. I mean, some of us are there right now where, where it is difficult to get out of bed because of just physical pain. Others have relational pain, relational suffering in the room. Bad marriages, broken marriages, breaking marriages, spouses that are extremely difficult, are extremely hard. Some of you have kids that are in the middle of rebellion or will be in the middle of rebellion that just literally are taking your heart out and just wringing it right in front of you. Some, it's emotional, where, where you're in the dark days, the desperate days of depression. 
makes it really difficult to get out of bed. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite guys in church history, he struggled incredibly hard with depression. There was a point that he couldn't get out of bed for six months. And when it would come up on him, he would compare it to a man fighting the mist. And some of you right now, that's what life feels like, like you're fighting the mist. That it feels like the clouds have covered up God for you. You just can't seem in the midst of, of the cloudiness that's around you. See, he's saying that it comes in a, a diversity of ways, like all, all these different ways. And listen, it's not just diverse, but it also comes in many different degrees. That, that some of us right now have lived 15, 20, 30 years of our life, 40 years of our life, maybe even 50. And your scars are light. And others in the room, your scars are deep and heavy. That if we were to survey the suffering in this room, I think we would be absolutely floored and shocked by the severity of suffering that is across this room. See, see Peter is saying, that, be ready for that. It's not just certain, but, but the sizes of it, they're diverse. The degrees of it, they're diverse. So you need to arm yourselves with that. You need to get ready for that. You need to get, keep this in your back pocket so when suffering hits, this isn't a surprise to you. He goes on, number three, the depth of suffering. Look at verse six. It's not just diverse, there's also a depth to it. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. You see that word grieve? You might underline that. That's an experiential word. That is what suffering tastes like when you're trying to swallow it. That this is the emotional response to suffering. And see, some people, I think they have this, this idea that in the midst of suffering, what faith looks like, a sign of faith, is by being very stoic, like expressionless. And listen, if that's you, let me just gently encourage you that that's probably just repressed grief, not a sign of faith in you. That when suffering happens, it has an emotional response that's associated with that. In other words, it hurts. And that word grief, that is a deep ache. I mean, deep at the bottom of your soul. It feels like the floor is just dropped out from underneath you. It is that sort of desperate ache, that grief. And listen, you see this all throughout the Bible. And can I just tell you this, that you've got permission to grieve, that the Bible actually is concerned about your grief in the midst of your suffering. Do you remember Job? All that happened to him. Do you remember his response to that? It says he rose up, he ripped his garment, shaved his head, and fell to the ground in absolute grief. It says that Jesus in Isaiah 53 was a man acquainted with grief. The, the grief is the emotional response, the heart-wrenching response to suffering. Listen to these words from John Bunyan. He's the guy that wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, he was a pastor in, in England back in the 1600s, spent 12 years in prison because he, he was preaching the gospel. All he had to do to get out of prison was say, I won't preach the gospel. 12 years in prison because he would not say, I won't preach the gospel. 12 years. And at one point in his biography, he talks about, um, he talks about just the, the deep anguish in his heart as he considered, not, not primarily the, the suffering he was going through, but, but the misery it was creating for his family. The grief in his heart as he thought about this. Listen to what he says. From prison, he says, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place in prison, 
listen how he describes it. As the pulling of the flesh from my bones. That's grief. The pulling of the flesh from my bones. Not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies. In other words, it's not because I love my family too, like, in an inappropriate way. But also because I often brought to my mind the many hardships and miseries and wants that my poor family was likely to meet with, meet with should I be taken from them. Now, one other side note of the story before we read the last line. His daughter was born blind. Mary has a blind daughter. And listen to what he says here. Especially the miseries that might befall my, my poor blind child, Mary, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardships my blind one might go under. And listen to this. He says, those thoughts of that would break my heart into pieces. That is the experience of grief, godly grief, faith-filled grief. That's the experience of grief. Like suffering produces, it's got depth to it. It's an ache that it produces, a grief that it produces, a deep pain that it produces. Okay, now, now just hear this. The Bible gives you permission to feel that. You don't have to be stoic in the midst of the world crashing down around you. The, the grief is involved in that. That's the depth of suffering. Number four, the design of suffering. The design of suffering. Okay, now, now before we look at the text, um, just, just a quick word on, on this. Because as soon as you mention design and suffering, it automatically poses a problem for us. I'm here recently, Casey Maddox and I, we were on a plane and uh, the plane had taken off. We were several thousand feet in the air and Casey just made a real simple observation. He said, wow, like all that down there looks totally different from up here. Okay, just a simple observation. Now, so see, here's the problem we have in the midst of suffering, that we are not up here. We are on the ground walking through it. And, and when we're on the ground walking through it, it is it is almost impossible to see from the sky. It's almost impossible. It instantly poses this, this perspective problem because it's personal. We feel it. We're walking through it. We're grieving in it. But, but let me just encourage you with this thought that there will be a day when we stand beside Jesus that, that just like us on the plane looking at the land, that we're going to say, wow, from up here, it looks radically different. Radically different. There's a design in this. Now, two clues for the design here. Look at verse six and seven. Two, two clues that there is design in our suffering. Verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You see that phrase in verse six? If necessary. Okay, now I, I think it would be just as faithful to the text if you supplied a, a couple of words in there. I, I think you could say this and it'd be just as accurate to what Peter's communicating. If God deems it necessary. So, so he's saying that if you're suffering, it's because God deems that suffering as necessary for you, as good for you ultimately. That God deems that, that it's a necessary thing to do some things in you. That God's got some design that, that he's going after in this suffering. So, so if God deems this necessary, but look at verse 7. Do you see how verse 7 starts? So that, that, that word so that is a purpose clause. That, that's saying that, that God is giving these things so that other things can come about. 
That there is design in the middle of suffering, that God is up to something in suffering. God is doing something in our suffering, that it's not random. It's not by chance or bad luck. It is the doing of God ultimately. It's the design of God ultimately, that God sits over these things ultimately, that there is design in suffering. This is what Peter is trying to make sure that his his readers are getting this. They're coming into alignment, that their, their view of suffering is biblically informed. Okay, now now here's what this introduces us into. Some of the deep mysteries of the providence of God God and the pain that you and I walk through, uh, of sovereignty and suffering. And so now let me just preface what I'm about to say. that The the point of this morning is not to unpack the whole thing in that. Um, When we get to chapter four, we're going to spend some time in that. And I hope to try to bring clarity to providence and pain, how suffering and sovereignty go together a little bit better for you. So that's that's coming for us. Um, But it's not here here yet. All right. So what I want to do today is not get to the bottom of that, but I want to at least introduce it to you. Okay. So, So let me introduce it by saying this. Suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. Suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. I I think what happens in the middle of of tragedy, and especially trying to minister to tragedy, um, in in the middle of just personal, the the world has just fallen down around a person. There is a tendency in us to want to get God off the hook of suffering. But, But I want you to hear this. The Bible and the, well, first of all, the Bible doesn't get God off the hook. And secondly, God doesn't want to be off of that hook. Okay, so, so sovereignty sits, or suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. Okay, now well, we're going to get to this when we get to chapter 3 and chapter 4. In, in 3.17, you've got suffering associated with God's will. In 4.19, it's very clear. Suffering fits into the will of God for your life. Peter says in, in, first, in, in first Peter 4.19 that when you're suffering according to God's will. Okay, so just, just hear this gently. That, that suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. Okay, now let me just give you a personal illustration of this. Kevin mentioned this earlier that, that his mom died of, of breast cancer. It was brutal. I mean, if, if you've had the, the cancer thing happen in your family, um, you know what that's like. Now, if Kevin were to come to me and say, so Rodney, you're telling me that that is according to God's will? You're telling me that my mom getting cancer and dying of cancer is God's will for her, for us, for this? Yeah, that's what you're telling me? Here would be my response back to Kevin. Kevin, no, that is not God's will. Kevin, yes, that is God's will. No, it's not. And yes, it is. No, it's not in the sense that God takes no delight in that. God does not like cancer. God hates cancer. He hates what cancer produces. It's the effects of the fall. God hates cancer. So no in that sense. God God takes no delight in that. God's not not, not pleased down in the grit of cancer and the brutality of that. But but yes, in the sense that um, God is sovereign. God could eradicate cancer tomorrow if he wanted to. But in his wisdom, he doesn't do it. In his wisdom, yes, in the sense that in his wisdom, he chooses to allow it and even ordain it and to use it for higher purposes. So so Kevin, no, in the sense that God hates cancer, just like God hates betrayal, just like God hates murder. But yes, in the sense that Acts 2 says God ordained that betrayal take place and the murder of an innocent man, namely his son, take place. 
So, so no in the sense that God hates it, but yes in the sense that God can ordain these things. That God can, in Acts 2 it says that the murder, the betrayal, the murder, the crucifixion of a sinless, his sinless son was according to his, his definite plan. Acts 4 says he predestined that to take place. He ordained that. So, so there is a way that we can say yes to that ultimately from a broad umbrella that God is sovereign, that, that he rescues everything from the design of Satan to decimate and destroy faith. He, he rescues all of that from, from Satan and he uses suffering for his good purposes, for his good designs to deepen us, not decimate us. So, so yes, in that sense. Okay, so, so let me just kind of walk through maybe a couple of, of the designs of God in suffering for us. Like what, what God can be up to in our life as we endure suffering. Number one, you see it come out here. Three of these. Suffering is a test for us. So, so sufferings bring about a test. You see it in verse seven. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. You, you see here this connection uh, between faith over here suffering over there and the test that happens in the middle of them. So you see the connection that, that suffering has to do with God testing us. This is what it says in, in 1 Peter 4.12 as well, that sufferings produce this test in us. Maybe I could say it this way. Suffering has the unique ability, unique among all other things that you're going to walk through in life. It has the unique ability to cut through our hypocrisy to the core of our heart. Suffering has that sort of ability. Do you remember um, the story of Joseph and his brothers? Remember that story? Um, Joseph was kind of the favorite of his, of his dad and his brothers hated him for that. So they plotted that they were going to kill him. But instead of killing, they kind of did this last ditch thing where let's just sell him into slavery and we can be done with it that way. Wash our hands, we're free. Problem solved. So they sell him into slavery. Um, while to the circumstances, he rises to the second command in all of Egypt. And lo and behold, his brothers show up in search for food and Joseph sees them. Now, in that moment, Joseph could have done this. He could have looked at them and said, hey, guys, bros, this is your brother Joseph, man. He could have done that, but he, he didn't. Uh, what, what would have been their response had he have done that? There would have been an instant, that's Joseph, our long lost brother. Man, we've missed you. We please give us some food right now, right? That there would be that instant response. But here's the problem. He would have had no idea if it was genuine. So do you remember what Joseph does? He, uh, he arranges a set of circumstances where the youngest one, Benjamin, is, is arrested. And he knew he was setting up the same sort of scenario that he was in. He knew that Benjamin was his father's favorite. And he wanted to see, has there been a realistic change here, an authentic change, a genuine change in these men and women, or in, the, in his brothers? Has that happened in them? And do you remember what happens when Benjamin is arrested? In Genesis 44, there's this powerful scene. Judah gets down on his knees before Joseph and he says, I cannot leave my brother here. You can kill me and let him live. You can make me your slave as long as you free him. But he has got to come home. And at that moment, it says that Joseph was just overcome and, and that's when he shows himself. See, there is, there is a test that happens there that, that like suffering's got this unique ability to cut through all the, the clutter, all the hypocrisy, straight to the core of what we really believe. It, it, it's got the unique ability to do that. And listen, that, where that illustration breaks down is God is not trying to discover what's inside of us. He knows that. But he's trying to show you what's inside of you. 
See, this is what suffering does. It shows us that. Suffering has this unique ability to cut through our hypocrisy to the core of our heart. Unlike anything else, troubles, trials, tragedy, that they show you what you really believe about life, about God, about your, all of these things. They, they, sh- they show you what you really believe is most precious in the world. Listen, prosperity cannot do that. Good health cannot do that. Wealth cannot do that. A good job cannot do that. A good marriage cannot do that. Suffering can do that. See, it serves as this test to expose you, to show you what's really inside of you. Secondly, sufferings refine us. So so there is a refinement process that goes on with suffering. Okay, in verse 7, Peter uses what would be pretty familiar imagery to them. He is saying that, that, think about gold. You know how gold is purified? They they would be familiar with this. Gold is purified by bringing it to a boil so that all the, the impurities are brought to the surface. So they can be scraped off. And he's saying, this is how your faith is refined. This is how you're brought to maturity. This is how, this is how you, you gain this insight and wisdom. This is how you grow in patience and long suffering. This is how these things happen. It's through suffering. It's through God putting you in the crucible and then turning up the heat of affliction and heartache. This is how he does it. Turning up the, the, the heat of trial and tragedy, of loss and calamity. This is how God refines you. This is how he brings your life to a boil so all the impurities can rise to the top and he can scrape them off. This is why the psalmist says, um, before, before I suffered affliction, I went astray, but now I love your word. This is why he says that. This is why Hebrews 5 says that Jesus learned obedience in what he suffered. That doesn't mean that he was disobedient and then he suffered and now he's obedient. It means he grew in his obedience deeper into his obedience. This is what sufferings do to us. They grow us in our obedience. They purify, they refine us. And listen, this is not just the the testimony of the scriptures. This is the testimony of all the saints of history. Let me just give you a, a sampling of this, two or three here. Thomas Brooks, Puritan of a few centuries ago. Few Christians see themselves and understand themselves rightly. By trials, not by prosperity, by trials, God reveals much of a man's sinful self to his pious self or his spiritual self. When the fire is put under the pot, then the scum appears. So when God tries, so, so same thing happens when God tries a poor soul. soul. Oh, how does the scum of pride, the scum of murmuring, the scum of distrust, the scum of impatience, the scum of worldliness, the scum of carnality, the scum of foolishness, the scum of willfulness. How do all those things reveal itself in the heart of the poor creature when trials, the heat of trials are turned up? Look at what he says next. Trials are God's looking glass in which his people see their own faults. Oh, that looseness, that vileness, that wretchedness, that stink of filthiness, that gulf of wickedness, which trials show to be in our hearts, in their hearts. Do you see what trials do? They are that refining heat in our life to purify our faith. Listen to Malcolm Muggeridge about a century ago. He, He says this, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful. I look back on those now with particular satisfaction 
Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that is truly enhanced and enlightened by existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. When is the last time you have ever heard someone say this, this great lesson that God taught me happened in the midst of prosperity? I've never heard that story. But, but I've heard plenty of those stories that sound like this. When it felt like God was crushing me, it, this, this, is when, th- this is when I was refined. Th- this is when it happened. This is why Charles Spurgeon says that it's when we jump into the deep seas of affliction that we bring out the rare pearls. So those, those, those pearls don't come out in the shallow wind. That they come out in the deep sea of affliction. One more pastor of about 100 years ago, he wrote a book on um, pain, suffering called God's Light on Dark Clouds. Listen to what he says. God's people are never so exalted as when they are brought low, never so enriched as when they are emptied, never so advanced as when they are set back by adversity. You see that? Never so advanced until you're set back by adversity, he says. Never so near the crown as when you're under the cross. And then listen to this. There are so many graces that can only be pricked into us by the puncture of suffering. And so many lessons that can only be learned through tears. And when God leaves a Christian without any trials, he really leaves him to a terrible danger. Now, how many of us think like that? That when God leaves trials out of our life, that's actually a danger for us. His heart, unplowed by discipline, will be very apt to run to the tears of selfishness and worldliness and pride. In a musical instrument, there are some keys that must be touched in order to evoke its fullest melodies. God is a wonderful organist who knows just what heart chord to strike. Do you see what, we're, do you see what all these guys are saying? That affliction in this way is not like a foe to run from, but a friend to be embraced. It is God's means of purifying, of refining us. This is why Martin Luther said, in all my library, you know my best book? It's the book of affliction. The book of, that, that's where God teaches. That's where God refines. That's where God purifies. So there's a, there's a refinement that happens in the midst of deep and dark hurt and suffering. One more. Suffering has a result. Suffering's result. Look at verse 7. So in light of all this, we, we've been grieved by these various trials. So the tested genuineness of our faith could emerge out of that. And then verse 7. So that, so that our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what ultimately affliction is doing for you. It is storing up this praise and this honor and this glory. Okay, now there, there's debate and commentaries, on, and it's kind of left vague in the text. So so whose honor, whose praise, whose glory is this? Like who gets the glory when Jesus gets back at the revelation of Jesus? It's a little bit vague. And so some commentators are, God gets it. Some commentators are, you get it. And I think it's a both and. I think both are in view here. That that as God refines you, as he puts you in the crucible of affliction and refines your faith so that it gives us praise and glory and honor. I think he's saying part this, that there will be a day when God looks at his saints, his followers, his children, his sons and daughters and says, Well done, my good servant. You have been faithful in your affliction. You have been faithful in your cancer. You have been faithful in in your heartache. You have been faithful in your loss. You have been faithful in this affliction. You've been faithful in this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
But I think there's this other sense in this where, where all of the, the pointing at us, like the, the, the glory, the honor, and the praise of our faith is all just a mirror that reflects back to the faithfulness of God. That at the end of the day, our faith is dependent upon a faithful God so that as praise and and glory and honor are being heaped on a good and faithful servant, really what's happening is all of that is being turned to display the faithfulness, the greatness, the glory, the grandeur of a wonderful God. See, this is what suffering is producing. It's so that all of that can happen. So suffering's got these great results. Number five. So suffering's got a design. There's a design to suffering. Number five, the duration of suffering. Look at verse six again. The duration of suffering. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. You see that? Though now for a little while. He's saying, listen, there is a duration on suffering. There is like, suffering is expiring. It's got a shelf life and there will be a day that it gets taken off the shelf and forever disposed of. Do you see what's happening here? That there is a shelf life on suffering. It does not last forever. So so it's got this duration, but I think it maybe even presses it one step further. And do you know what the little while means? That little while equals the length of your life. Little while equals the length of your days. And some of us in here, you're going to live to 80, 90. Some of you might even hit the century mark. But do you know what? Even if you do, and that's going to be a few of us in here, by the way. But, but even if you do, here's what the Bible's going to say. Your life is a mist. It's a vapor. A hundred years in light of eternity is a five-minute recess. There, there's a duration. Like, your life is a vapor. And so I, I think some of us just need to sit and see our lives clearly. That it's just a little while. So I've had a terrible life. I've had a bad life. It's just a little while. Five-minute recess in life. It's just a little while. I, there, there is something worse than having a hard life here. That's having a hard life in eternity. Amen? It's just a little while. So as bad as it gets, for, just remember, it's always for a little while. There's a duration. That it's expiring. That, that, that grief is expiring. Joy is everlasting. Right? So, so it's got a time frame associated with it. Last one, and we'll, we'll kind of close it up with this. The dilemma of suffering. Okay, in verse 6 and 7, Peter is unpacking trials. You you have been grieved by various trials. You're being tested in that. It's a refining issue. It results in something great. So he's unpacking trials. Now I want you to see what sandwiches suffering. So six and seven, suffering. Look how verse six starts. In this you rejoice. Look how verse eight ends the passage. You rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, uncontainable. Like you can't have words to, to like put on this sort of a joy. So you see what's happening here? And, and like the, the tenses of all these words are, are saying there's an overlap in this. That right now you are grieving and right now you are rejoicing. See, this is the dilemma of suffering. That you would think that if you're grieving, you couldn't be rejoicing. And you would think that if you're rejoicing, you couldn't be grieving. And that is true for, for the rest of the world. But for a Christian and because of the gospel, here is what is a new reality for us. We can rejoice in the midst of our grief. We can sing in the midst of our suffering. We can praise God even in the midst of our pain. We can be like Job because of what Jesus has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us. We can be like Job. He's just ripped his garment, shaved his head, sit down. But what does he do? He worships God. 
There, there, there can still be this rejoicing even in the midst of deep anguish and grief. So, so let me finish by giving you nine reasons out of this passage. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Why a Christian can rejoice even, even when it feels like they're being crushed. Even when it feels like the floor is out from underneath. Why we can rejoice even in the midst of that. So three of the, I'm going to give you nine of them. Three of them are going to be something that we look back at. Three of them we're looking presently at. And three of them we're looking to the future at. So nine of them. Why it is that we can rejoice. Why it is that a Christian in the midst of anguish has a deeper joy. As we look back, three things. God's great mercy. Do you see verse three? According to his great mercy. And just just as a quick aside, when you look at verse six, it says, in this you rejoice. That this, like in this, the this, that this is the content of three through five. So, So look at verse three. Mercy. Do you see mercy according to his great mercy? Here's what you can know in the midst of all of your suffering, that God is merciful. Here's one of the problems I think we have in the midst of suffering is that we can imagine a God who would be more merciful than what's happening to us right now. We, we can picture a God that would be more merciful. But there will be a day when we see Jesus, when, when I think that the scales are kind of lifted off of our eyes and we see there could be no more merciful God. There could be no more merciful plan for this world than sending his son into the world to suffer in this world for us and with us. There could be no more merciful God than that who would send his son to live a sinless life in place of our sinful life, die an undeserving death in place of our deserved death, buried, raised. There would be no more merciful God. Here's what you can know if you're a son or daughter of God, that in his mercy, he has sent salvation to you. And regardless of your suffering right now, in his mercy, he has sent that to you that he's merciful. We can look back and see that God has caused us to be born again. Do you see that in verse three? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Like he has remade the inside of us. It's this decisive act of God that gives us rebirth, a new life, totally reorients, remakes, and reshapes our heart. So now for the first time, our heart starts beating toward God. We start loving God and longing for God. It's this picture, remember Ezekiel 37 of last last week, where, where God looks at the valley of dry bones and he sees your dry bones. And he breathes life into your dry bones so that now you live. That God has caused us to be born again. We can look back and see that Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you see that in verse 3? According to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that Jesus has been raised. You know what that tells us? That we have this down payment. We have this assurance that God rights all wrongs. That there will be a day where he writes all wrongs for us. That, that if you have been in the crucible of suffering, just like Jesus was, your body has been broken, your blood has been spilled. Here's what you can know, that there will be a day that God raises that from the dead, that God redeems that, resurrects that. So, so if you've been in the crucible of suffering and you have been shaken so hard that your bones have broke, here's what you can know because of the resurrection. God will remend those bones. He'll redeem those bones. He'll put those bones back together for you. As we look at the present, we can know number four, that suffering is by God's design, that this is God's doing, that ultimately, from a big picture level, that this is the mercy of God refining and doing things that nothing but suffering could do in us. And listen, this is not a call to rejoice in like a particular form of suffering. It's a call to rejoice in what God is doing in that suffering. Nobody's up here saying great cancer, but we can say this, 
Look at what God has done through that. Look at what God has done in my heart in the midst of that. That God has a design for suffering. Five, we can look at the present and see that suffering has a short duration. That there will be a day where suffering is eradicated. That the worst thing that you go through, bad life here, it's just life. There's something better to come. The Puritans used to say that you can consider all of your crosses and calamities, all of your losses, all your trials and troubles in this life, just know, just, just, just know, this is as close to hell as you will ever get. You see that? That there's a duration on this. Number six, we can look at the present and we can see God's power is our guard. You see that in verse five? That God's power is guarding us. So here's what we can know. That when suffering seems overwhelming, when the pain seems like I cannot breathe for another second, I cannot make it through another day, I cannot get out of bed, I cannot endure this, we can know that the same God who saves us is the same God that will sustain us. We're being kept by the power of God. As we look forward, we can know that we have an inheritance. You see that in verse verse four. Moth and rust will not destroy. Thieves cannot break in and steal. And listen, here's the the reality of the the biblical stance on this inheritance. When Paul looks at that inheritance, here's what he says. When he looks at his present sufferings, they're not worth comparing to it. When he looks at that inheritance that's coming for him, it makes every piece of his suffering, and it was severe, right? It was severe suffering. It makes every one of those sufferings seem light to Paul. I love what Mother Teresa said. She said that in light of this inheritance, that all of the miseries of life will just seem like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. That's what an inheritance does for us. Number eight, we can rejoice because our faith, as we look forward, our faith will magnify the faithfulness of God. That there will be a day that God can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You endured cancer. You were faithful in calamity. You were faithful when your son died. You were faithful when your daughter died. You were faithful when your mother died. You were faithful. And that faithfulness points to a faithful God. It's a mirror that, that just shows and displays to the world that God is great. He's grand. He's beautiful. He's precious. You can look forward and know that that's what your suffering is is producing out there in the future. And number nine, we can rejoice because we know that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Do you see it in verse nine? Regardless of how bad our suffering is, we can know this. We are saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. There will be a day when all sorrow turns to, to laughing. There, there will be a day that, that the, the deep sorrow in our heart can be a beautiful song. We can look forward to that. We can know that, that God is saving us, that there will be a day that all of this is eradicated and Jesus, perfection, Revelation 21 is there before us. So he, here's my hope for us, that, that God would drive these great gospel realities deep into our heart so that Stonegate Church, you and I, when it comes for us, that we can praise God in the midst of deep pain. We can sing to God in the midst of horrific suffering. That that God would bring these gospel realities, they would be so weighty to us that they they would be this anchor of the soul as the storms of life rage. Amen? Let's pray together. This week has been painful in just prepping for um, some of First Peter and knowing that suffering is a, a major theme that we'll be talking about several different times over the next few months. And it's forced me to read story after story of, I mean, just 
horrendous suffering. Horrendous. A daddy had an eight-year-old boy that um, had, a, had a small fever going. Uh, by mid-afternoon, it was a little bit higher, calls the doctor, we're okay, give him some Tylenol, slips into a coma and dies. A- another man that is walking his girl, little girl across the street, got her by the hand when a car veers toward them. He barely slips out of the way of the bumper and before his eyes sees his little girl crushed. Reading the story of a 17-year-old girl that jumps into a lake, breaks her neck, quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And just story after story of just heart-wrenching suffering. And I I can't help but read those and think, how am I going to respond when when that's me? I mean, how how am I going to respond when that when that sort of suffering lands on me? How is our church going to respond in that? How are you going to respond in that? I mean, it it has just made me and caused me to pray so hard for us that the gospel, all that God has done for us in Jesus, is doing for us in Jesus, will do for us because of Jesus, that these would be weighty, earthy realities around here that, that would cause us in the middle of great suffering to sing great praises to God. So I pray that for you, that God, God would start working these things deeply into us. So, so maybe this would just be a morning for you that you would just ask God to start that in you. You would just ask God, God, in your mercy and your grace, God, God, will you press these things deep so that I will be prepared? God, will you, will you give me a view of the future so that like Paul, every suffering that I might encounter would be light to me, seem light to me? God, that in, in light of eternity, that, that any sort of suffering I would encounter would be just like one bad night in an inconvenient hotel. God, God will you do that sort of a thing in me? So, so, that, so that in the midst of suffering, I can say, God, blessed be your name. So that like Job, I, I can fall to the ground in anguish and still worship. God, will you, will you do that for us? And if you're on the outside right now, if you are investigating the claims of Jesus, you haven't stepped across the line of faith, all of these promises as we look back, all of these promises as we look at the present, and all of these promises that we look at in the future, they they require for you to be one of God's adopted. It, It requires that you trust Jesus with your life, holding up your life and saying, God, here I am, I surrender. There's this treasure, and God, I, I want you, and I long for you above all things. And at that moment, God says, you're saved. You're brought into the family. You're, you're made one of his, and all these precious gospel promises become yours. So if that hasn't happened, I pray this will be a day that God works for that in you. So God, will you do these things in us by your grace, by the power of your spirit? Make us into a, a people who in the midst of pain can praise, in the midst of sorrow can sing, in the midst of of deep anguish, 
we have a deeper joy. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.